This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 17th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the temple, the priest and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Capias, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition." But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a a noble sign has been performed, though through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called upon them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak for what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. <clears throat> Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. If you would pray with me, we will get right into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, this is the day that you have made, and so I pray you will let us rejoice and be glad in it. On this day, declared Father's Day by the world, we recognize that every day is your day, Father. A day that you have planned before the foundation of all days, for you are the ancient of days. 
And as we remember and celebrate the different men that you have brought into our lives who have been fathers to us, we acknowledge the imperfections in them all, including our own as their children. Every man and woman and mother and father fails to fall or falls short of your glory. But you are the Holy Father, the perfect Father, the Father who always protects, who always provides, who never fails in being faithful to us. You are the one as loving Father who came after us, who would not let us go, and when we returned, forgave us and clothed us in new robes and celebrated with all of your servants as if we had returned from the dead. And that's why we are here, to give you praise, Father, to give you thanks, for you are the only good and worthy Father. And we pray, though, for our children. We pray that our children will honor their fathers because they love and honor you. You call yourself the father of the fatherless, Lord. And we know that there are millions of orphans right now that there are even half a million in the foster care system in our own country right now. We ask that You'll provide them, earthly fathers, shepherds, to love them and lead them to You. And we pray for the fathers among us. We ask that all of us will see and believe that our best hope to be good fathers is to first be a child of You, Father. Would you give us new hearts filled with your love so that we can understand what actually love means? And finally, as we approach the book of Acts this morning, God, I pray that you will restore or perhaps birth in us a new sense of boldness that comes from being a member of your family. Help us to remember who you are so that we know without doubt who we are with you. And it is the name of Jesus, your only Son, that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 4, working our way through this summer and probably end somewhere in chapter 9 until we take a break and return to it again. And my sermon this morning is, is titled, uh, Bold Enough to Witness. Bold Enough to Witness. We live in a very bold culture. Very bold. We live in a culture of all-out spokenness, intense frankness and amplified bluntness. We say a lot about a lot, a lot of the time. And our capacity for such boldness has been exponentially increased by things like social technology, empowering us in many ways to share our bold proclamations about every topic, every person, and every opinion all the time. And as a result, the world has become, I think, increasingly full of noise as everyone shares their two cents on everything to everyone. I fear we live in a culture where boldness has come to mean being pretty much a blowhard. Now, a blowhard's an arrogant person, one who boasts all the time a prideful windbag who never stops talking or tweeting or otherwise posting words, 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 and more words. And the difficulty of that, or maybe the caution of that, is Proverbs 10.19 says, when words are many, sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips or fingertips 
That's the SAV, Sam Ford version, SFV. Whoever restrains his lips or fingertips is prudent. The Bible has much to say about the kind of person that is unable to do that, and none of it is very pleasant. Biblically, boldness is a certain kind of brave action, and I want to focus the action this morning on brave speaking. Speaking bravely or boldly has nothing to do with speaking brashly. Biblical boldness has to do with the courage to speak the right words at the right time in the right way and for the right reasons. As John Piper wrote, boldness in acting by the power of the Holy Spirit is an urgent conviction to do so in the face of some threat. Boldness is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, God encourages this kind of bold action throughout the Old Testament several times in different ways. Once in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy He says, Be strong and courageous, adding, do not fear or be in dread of the enemies they're about to face, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And after Moses dies, he says the same thing to the next leader of Israel, Joshua. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So God says, be brave. Do not fear because of a truth about me. Now many of us do not live and do not speak boldly for Jesus because we're not brave. And by that I mean most of us are not brave because we fear Persecution from men. And we fear persecution from men, I believe, because we lack conviction about God. And so as we study this passage, there's a few things I want to focus on as we kind of tackle this concept of boldness. And one is the sound of boldness. What is that supposed to sound like? And another is the heart of boldness. And then lastly is the cost. And my prayer is that by the time we're done, perhaps with this morning, we'll be a little bolder than maybe we were before. So the first is, what should our boldness sound like? And so in Acts chapter 4, it details really the first opposition to the message of Jesus. The real, kind of first real persecution of the first evangelists. In the beginning of this chapter, Peter and John had demonstrated a tremendous amount of boldness as they uh, proclaimed the gospel publicly and defend it faithfully, and now they will stand for it fearlessly against some authorities who were trying to stop them. Following the healing of this lame man at the beautiful gate, the disciples preached the gospel to explain what had happened and to call people to repent and believe. The text says that as they were speaking, the rulers and authorities at the temple became annoyed. They were annoyed. They were bugged. They were irritated. They were angry. Peter had preached a great number of things, I think, that maybe annoyed them because most of them were directed at these leaders. Among some of those things, he said very directly, 
by the way, you killed the author of life, Jesus. But God raised him from the dead, he said. He said, this man has been healed through faith in Jesus, the guy you killed. So repent from your sin, turn back, the resurrected Jesus stands ready to save you and bless you. They didn't like that. The leaders are not annoyed at the existence of this new church. They are not annoyed at the gatherings of the church. They are not annoyed by what amounts to probably the social ministry of the church. They're annoyed at the authoritative declaration of God's Word about Jesus. That's what they're annoyed at. Christians can be very annoying about a lot of things. But there's only one thing that we're supposed to annoy people with. And that is, I would argue, the truth about Jesus. But I fear that may not be on the top ten list for people who are annoyed by Christians. The truth of God's Word confronts the idols of the world. It confronts us emotionally, intellectually, even experientially. That's what it's designed to do. And when people are annoyed, what might begin with irritation and opposition will in time eventually become persecution, whether socially, materially, or physically. What is most troubling for these leaders is not the teachings about truth concerning morality or ethics, but truth about Jesus and His resurrection. That's what they're upset about. I find that there are actually very few people who are offended by Jesus as teacher today. There are actually probably a few people that are offended, not many, by Jesus as prophet, because that can mean all kinds of things. Certainly not as social revolutionary. But the world hates resurrected Jesus, Lord and Savior of the world. The one and only King. The gospel is offensive because at the core of it, the resurrection is offensive to us. But it's possible, and, and maybe you've had this experience, I've been thinking a lot about this, it's possible that the resurrection of Jesus is no longer offensive like it was because either we don't proclaim it except on Easter, or we don't explain what it actually means. Paul wrote that those who preached the death and resurrection of Jesus are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance of death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. What does that mean? Well, we're going to smell like something. We're going to smell like life to those God is saving. And when you talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're going to smell like death to those who are not saved. We're going to stink in the best and worst of ways. So in other words, the Gospel 
sounds like good news to many, but we have to come to the reality that it sounds like offensive news to most if it's actually preached boldly and clearly. The gospel, in particular the resurrection, is offensive because it demands that everyone surrender their own self-rule and place Jesus on the throne of their lives. For if Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, then everything Jesus taught and claimed is true. And if everything Jesus taught and claimed is true, then there is only one correct view of the world, his. And only one supreme authority who has the first and last word in life and death, him. And the Jewish leaders know this. So they arrest Peter and John because of their teaching on the resurrection. Now think about this as you consider our own world today of what church leaders typically are getting in trouble for making the news about. I don't remember the last pastor who made the headlines because he was boldly proclaiming the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if that says something about the church or the culture or both. But for some reason, we have lost the sound of our boldness and what we have sounded out has been maybe anything but the resurrection and a lot of other stuff that they very well may be important, but not the most important thing. So we think about even as Peter and John sit in jail all night, and that's what happens because it was late in the day when they got arrested. Even as they sit in jail, the text says that the church continued to grow. Because the power was actually not in the leaders. The power was in the Word of the resurrection. And those who heard the Word of the resurrection believed, and it says the church grew to more than 5,000 men, now, it's not that it was only men, but they're just accounting for men, so it was much more than 5,000, more than likely, if you include the women and the children. Pretty amazing for a church that didn't exist weeks prior. When Paul had penned his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, from a jail cell, he declared that he was bound with chains as a criminal, but the Word of God is never bound. What a beautiful picture. Do we understand where the power for salvation resides? Where the power of any church resides? Where the power of any sermon resides? It is in the resurrection of Jesus and that truth, no matter who speaks it. True boldness resounds primarily about the resurrection of Jesus or it is really not truly the boldness of God. That's what we must hear most of the time. And I think if you asked today the average person, whatever that means in culture, what do Christians believe that is different than other religious groups? I'm not sure the resurrection of Jesus would be first and foremost when it ought be. 
We are people of the resurrection. We are people that have a faith and a life dedicated, built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is what distinguishes us from all other people, and that belief dictates how we live. So beyond or behind the words, there is, I would argue, my second point, a certain belief behind this boldness. At the heart of our boldness is something. Our boldness about talking of Jesus resurrected. You see, the next day, Peter and John are brought before Jewish rulers and scribes. In attendance, it says, is Annas, the former high priest. He was the high priest during much of Jesus' upbringing. Caiaphas, who's the current high priest, who was actually the high priest who oversaw Jesus' trial. And Alexander, who would be the next high priest who would follow. So they're kind of encircled by this panel of Jewish leaders, and they're asked a question, Peter and John are asked, by what power or what name did you do this? In other words, they're asking, what authority outside of us gave you the right to say and do these things? Peter knew that many of these same men as I said several weeks prior, presided over the trial of Jesus right before they killed him. Just think about that. See, we always know the end of the story. We know how things end. Peter's standing before men who were responsible for condemning Jesus. Maybe tempted to squirm out? Tempted to not say anything? Scared a bit? I don't know how anyone couldn't be filled with fear unless, as we see here, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In John 14.26, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come and He would bring to remembrance everything that Jesus had taught. And one of the things that Jesus had taught was in Luke chapter 12, verse 8, and He said this, Everyone who acknowledges Me before men the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies Me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So imagine Peter's remembering what Jesus said. And filled with the Spirit, he takes his opportunity. I think given the same opportunity, apart from the Holy Spirit, I imagine we might spend a lot of time weighing what we might say or not say to either get us out of trouble or not make things worse. Right? You know what that really is at its core? Concern over the approval and devoted to the fear of men. What are they going to think about what I say? What, what, okay, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Remembering what Jesus said, Peter speaks very boldly without apology, declaring, oh, you want to know by what name and what power? By the name and the power of Jesus, whom you killed, 
and God raised, this man's been healed. I wonder if John's like, you didn't need to add that part, Peter. Like, the killed part, I think they may know and remember that. It's by Jesus, by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Jesus has done this. Perhaps the leaders were expecting Peter to have no real explanation, maybe to take credit privately, but he'd already declared publicly to the astonished crowds when it happened, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Jesus made him walk. Peter already pointed out who should get credit. And then Peter drops an Old Testament bombshell. It's awesome. He drops it from something called the Hallel, which we've talked about. Psalms 113 to 118 is a series of psalms that were sung during Passover and during Pentecost and a couple different times. More than likely, these were the songs that the disciples sang with Jesus on the night He was betrayed. And so, he says, this Jesus, Peter's saying, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. Well, that's a direct quote out of Psalm 118 that had been sung all week during Pentecost. During, these guys were like knew exactly what he was saying. He's like, what? Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, if you ever take the time to read it, is a song of praise that illustrates God bringing new life to what was dead. It's actually a historic psalm of sorts. It testifies, we preached some time ago, Haggai. And that was a kind of a survey of when they built the second temple after the return from the Babylon captivity. And so the first lines of this psalm actually quote the book of Ezra where people are giving thanks as they're laying the new foundation of the second temple. And the psalm says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And you can imagine them as they're pouring the foundation, praising and singing. And if you don't want to imagine it, just read it in the book of Ezra. It's a very redemptive psalm that testifies to God delivering His people again. And the psalmist says, The Lord is my strength and it's become my salvation, or more technically, my Yeshua, my Jesus. The Lord is my strength, and it's become my salvation, my Yeshua. This is the psalm that Peter's quoting. In other words, more than anything, it's a messianic psalm, and it points to a time when the Messiah will rule and reign from His temple. And here's the last few words of it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my Yeshua, my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. So Peter is standing under fear of and likely threat of death saying, Jesus did this. He's the stone that you rejected and is now crushing you, but He is building a people and I'm so glad that He is my Savior. This is the Lord's day. 
and they're astonished. Peter basically says, by the way, this song has been talking about Jesus all these years. He tells these men that, that Jesus is the cornerstone that they and all the world has rejected. The stone on which God is building His nation, His people, His priesthood of believers. The cornerstone on any kind of building project was the biggest and the best stone that builders used as a measuring line and a plumb line for the whole structure. It ensured that it was built correctly. A measuring line is used to check the horizontal trueness of something, of a building, and the plumb line is used to check the vertical trueness of something. It made sure the construction of this building, this thing, was true. wasn't crooked. was the right size and shape. And so Peter boldly says, speaking not just to his people, but speaking to us, that Jesus is the cornerstone for the house of God. The stone that serves as the reference point for all other stones shaping the whole structure of our lives. In his own epistle later, Peter recall Jesus the living stone. Meaning it's not just a code of ethics or, or morality that we're talking about a relationship with an actual person, not just a religious code. And he is a living person to live life through, not merely a set of instructions he gave us to live by. Believing is not merely acknowledging words about Jesus. Lots of people do that. Lots of Anyone can acknowledge facts about Jesus. But that's not what Peter's saying. Believing is not merely and only about acknowledging words about Jesus. It is about shaping your life according to everything Jesus says and does. What part of our life? Every part. You see, many, most in this world build their lives on the wrong foundation. And it takes but a famine of sorts. Whether that be a recession or whether it be a loss in their family to realize the foundation that they built their lives on as it gets knocked out from under them makes their whole life fall apart. So most people build their lives on the wrong foundations. They may build it on success. They may build it on their careers. They may build it on their education. They may build it on their own families. But there are many of us who I think maybe build their lives on the right foundation, but build it the wrong way. We get the measuring, perhaps, part of the cornerstone right, but the plumb line is off. But we're to be living pictures of Jesus as we build our lives on Him and according to His designs. It's possible, did you know, to build a life that is not aligned with the cornerstone. And what happens, it's just a matter of time before it gets so crooked that it needs to be torn down or just falls down because of a storm. Even though you started on the right foundation. 
So without apology, Peter says, there is no other foundation. There is no other stone that life can be built on or shaped by. And if you have built your life on anything else, it will fail. It will fail to satisfy and it will bring destruction to your life, if not now, soon. There's no other stone, there's no other person in history that explains perfectly, coherently, where I come from, why I'm here, what is right, what is wrong, and where am I going after death? Peter declares one of the most boldest statements in all of Scripture. One of the most offensive statements in all of Scripture. One that we don't say enough and are very apologetic even when we do say it. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is not to say there aren't a lot of names that people give. Let's say there is only one name given by heaven through which we must be saved. That's bold. It's bold to say that, by the way, you need salvation. To tell someone they need rescue is to tell them they're in harm's way. They are on a path to destruction. They are dying. Isn't that what Jesus said? You don't believe me, you're going to die in your sins. We don't like to tell people they're dying. We don't like to tell people they're sinners. We're afraid to declare that, guess what? You need a Savior. You need rescue. You are dry. You're drowning. But even if we're brave enough to say that, to say there's only one way to God, that's bold and true. Some might argue that such a path through Jesus Christ alone is quite narrow. But I would argue, as many apologists do, that narrow is truly what we find in all other religions. Narrow is demanding some sort of self-accomplished righteousness to be accepted. Narrow is expecting a certain amount of good work that will outweigh your bad work. Narrow is expecting the arrival at a certain level of spiritual understanding. Narrow is salvation dependent upon man apart from grace. And here's a news flash. There is not a single good man or woman, not one. That the path of Christ is open to all who would repent to any who would repent and believe is not narrow at all. And that's the heart of our boldness. The sound of our boldness is talking about Jesus Christ resurrected on the throne and the heart of our boldness is the deepest conviction that Jesus is who He said He was. And that He is who He said He was because of the resurrection. And who did He say He was? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
about his own rescue from Hinduism, apologist Ravi Zacharias wrote this, I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I remained with him because there was no other way I wished to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have, and I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger, and I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future, and I remain with him certain about my destiny. I come amid the thunderous cries of a culture that has 330 million deities, and I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth, by definition, excludes. So as the truth of God and the authority of Jesus is challenged in our lives, we must have the boldness enough to say because we have the deep enough conviction to believe that, hey, I love you, I respect you, but I'm with Jesus. That's really what it comes down to. And that's what Peter and John are saying. There's no one else to be with. He is the only way. If we don't have Him, we have nothing. But Peter and John realize in the last part of this section that there is a cost to boldly standing for the truth. After Peter speaks to the leaders, they're quite astonished. And Jesus again had told His disciples that they would have this experience. In Luke chapter 21, He said, look, they're going to lay their hands on you and they're going to persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. And He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And He says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before how to answer. Isn't that interesting? For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. We kind of think like, man, I better study every book there is. I better get a degree in theology. That's not what Jesus says. I would argue that this is the book you should dedicate yourself to most. And as much as there are many godly and wonderful teachers and apologists and pastors out there whom we can learn much from, it cannot compare to the Word of God. And so, Peter has this experience. The leaders are amazed at the boldness of these unschooled common men. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would argue that probably the majority of us, if I'd ask, how many think you're you're an awesome apologist. You got all your theology figured out and you've memorized half the New Testament, right? Andrew would be like, right here. And the rest of us would be like, praise be to God for Andrew. But the rest of us, I think, would feel like common men, right? And what is the number one excuse we use for like, I can't be bold because I don't know what to say? Well, you know Jesus rose from the dead. Let's start there. And Jesus says, trust me, my Spirit will fill in the rest. Man, what comfort that brings. But it doesn't mean that comfort doesn't come with a cost. The only explanation these guys can figure out, like, what? how can these guys be doing this? 
they recognized these as men who had been with Jesus. That's simple. If you want to get closer to Jesus, read this. What does Jesus want for me? Read this. Who is Jesus? Read this. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more you begin to look and sound like Jesus. And more than anything, you fear just not men. Jesus had no fear of men. People actually walked up like, I know you don't care what people think. Right? He had no fear of men, but he feared God and he called us to the same. Though unpopular to quote, Jesus, meek and mild, right after he said, the Spirit will give you words. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you to whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. Jesus said that? Yeah. For the part of these leaders, uh, they have a lot of fear of men. They're actually afraid to punish Peter and John because of what the people might do to them, ironically. So they decide to just kind of warn the disciples, hey, can you guys stop teaching that? Don't teach in Jesus' name anymore. One commentator made a note to say, you know, if they had Jesus' body laying around, it was probably the right time to present it. Well, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Nope, no, you guys are wrong. Here, here's his body. No, they didn't have a body because he had risen from the dead. So when they tell him not to speak in Jesus' name anymore, Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Although we know that Peter and John were released without punishment at the moment they said this, they didn't know what was going to happen saying that. You guys stop teaching in Jesus' name. No. They didn't know what was going to happen. These are the same guys that killed Jesus. Jesus had been killed by these same men and He had performed many more miracles around Jerusalem than they did. They knew their boldness may cost their lives. And they were prepared to pay that price. And in time, Peter would. I would argue that today, to our shame, most of us deny Jesus for merely a threat to our lifestyles, let alone our lives. And by lifestyle, I mean, oh, I'm not going to be as popular, I'm not going to be as successful, I'm not going to be as prosperous or powerful. We deny Jesus for much less than a threat to our lives. Though there are people today in this world who proclaim Jesus at a threat and cost to their lives still. There is no cost in believing boldly. But there's a cost in proclaiming boldly. There is no cost to believing privately. But there is a real cost to proclaiming publicly. 
There are authorities in our lives and in our communities who can and will make our lives difficult, even painful, if we preach this Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, there's lots of Jesuses. There's another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. They go around, there's all kinds of versions. But if we preach the biblical Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords Jesus, the resurrection from the dead Jesus, the strong words Jesus, no one gets upset with servant Jesus, no one gets upset with meek and mild Jesus, no one gets upset with social justice Jesus. But what of the only way to God, obey my commands, there's a hell Jesus. If not now, then soon, I believe we will all be faced with a choice of allegiance to the authority of Jesus and His truth or to the authority of the world and their lives. I thought the late R.C. Sproul explained it well about when that time comes. We're always to obey those in authority over us unless that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands. Our opponents may come from the government. Our opposition may come from with our own family. It may be from our boss or coworker. It may even be from within the church. Any one of those God-ordained authorities may actually challenge Jesus, the biblical Jesus, as the way and the truth and the life. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, the choice is clear, the cost is clear, and the consequences are eternal. As Jesus asked, what will you give in exchange for your soul? I mean, who cares about popularity or power or prosperity when we're talking about the soul? Our souls, our eternal souls. So what must we do? Well, I'll close with the final words from an older Peter. Perhaps a wiser Peter. Who had likely defended his faith many times after this first time. And famously he wrote in 1 Peter 3.15 this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, we often focus on the second half of that verse. It's the apologist verse, right? The apologetics verse. Giving a defense. But did you notice the first half of that verse? what will prepare us, what will enable us to actually be bold is honoring Christ as Lord, as holy and set apart, as supreme in our lives. It is only when we see Jesus as supreme, resurrected Jesus as Lord in our lives and perfect in our hearts that we will stand for Him. If He's not King of the world, if He's not Creator of all things, then why would we stand for Him? But if He is, who else is there to stand for? 
We may not be dragged before governors or judges, before council or courts yet, but we will all have the opportunity to be bold for Jesus in this culture, in our communities, maybe even in our own homes. And I would encourage all of us that biblically, boldness is not a personality trait. I'm just not a bold person. I'm a little more reserved. I'm not obnoxious like you, Sam, right? Boldness is not about a personality trait. Boldness is about an action at an opportunity that is empowered by the Spirit for that moment. And when that moment arrives, we must remember that our boldness has nothing to do with confidence in what we might say, but in who we say it about. Jesus. For those who do not know Jesus among us, I plead with you, and this is a bold move, be bold enough to surrender yourself to Jesus and acknowledge your sin. Be bold enough to admit that you really stink as Lord of your own life. Be bold enough to receive forgiveness, to turn from your sin, and to have salvation today on this amazing Father's Day. And for those who do know Jesus, who have said and confessed that Jesus is Lord, and believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, I plead with you to be bold enough to trust Jesus not only with your life, but with your living. And it comes with this promise that Jesus said, if we will be bold for Him before men, He will be bold for us before God. Wow. When that moment comes, empowered by the Spirit, if I just open my mouth, yep, Jesus is Lord. He stands before the Father and says, Sam's my kid. What a beautiful, powerful, empowering thing. Be bold for the Lord and He's bold for us. Let's pray.